Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds and podcast listeners. This is Steve Dawson here from the Hen House Studio here in historic Nashville, Tennessee. And it's great to be back here bringing you another episode of the podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in and checking it out. This month we have um, Joaquin Cooter here, who is the son of Rye Cooter and a fabulous percussionist, songwriter, singer, and player of unusual instruments that we will get into in great detail. So we're going to have uh, a good in-depth conversation with Joaquim, and uh, I'm really looking forward to bringing that to you. Now, as always, I would just like to um, bring your attention to how we keep this show going. It's completely brought to you by listener support and also one very special sponsor that keeps coming back and helping us out. But uh, the listener, that's you, can chip in in a couple ways. The one easiest way that you could go and help out right now is go and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's really easy. It's free. You just go and subscribe. That gets our subscription numbers up and it gets our visibility up in the podcast world. And that's really helpful. So if you could do that and while you're at it, leave a review of the show, a glowing awesome review would be very helpful. Those things really help out and I would be 
over the moon if you would go there right now and just left a little uh, a little review and a little five star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. That would be hugely helpful. So you can do that. That's free and easy, and that's a big help. You can also donate to the show. Just head on over to thehenhousestudio.com and go to the podcast page, and there's a donate button. You can just leave a donation if you feel like it. And the other way is to subscribe to us through our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash makers and shakers. And you can subscribe to us there, which for a fee of your choice per month, it just comes straight out of your credit card as little as a buck or two a month is very helpful. And um, that really adds up and allows us to do all the things that we need to do. Oh, and you can also, uh, as of now, you can buy t-shirts. So head on over to thehenhousestudio.com Go to the podcast page, and right near the top there, there's some shirts for sale that are cool, and lots of people have ordered those, and there's a few different designs there, and I think they're pretty cool, and I would love for you to order one, so go ahead and do that. Okay, so that's enough of that business. Let's turn our attention to this month's episode with Joaquin Cooter. Okay, so here's what's going on. On this show, uh, in the past, and the, the reason that I started the show in the first place was to talk to some of the people that have been around forever making great records, and um, I think everybody has appreciated that, and they've liked hearing the stories. But what I've also been trying really hard to do lately is talk to some younger people, and by younger I mean like under 50, under 40 even, is pushing it for me sometimes, because like without a, kind of a long track record, they don't exactly fit the profile of what this show is about, but that's going to change because A, there's a finite number of people I can talk to that are 90 years old, and B, uh, there's some really, as we know, really interesting people out there making awesome, fresh, new music. It's not really what the original intention was, but it's where I'm interested in taking this show. And um, so Joaquin Cooter fits the bill. He's an interesting one because, you know, he is the son of Ry Cooter, and I'm a big fan of Ry Cooter. Anyone that has listened to the show knows that I bring him up with various people that have worked with him. And I'm also a slide guitar player, and he's been a big influence on me. But Joaquin has played on so many of his dad's great records, which we're going to talk about. But he's also started creating his own music. He's been involved in bands and things like that around the L.A. area for years. But I have not been aware of his solo music until just recently when he put out a record called Fuchsia Machu Picchu. And we're going to talk to him a bunch about that. So what he started doing, uh, I don't know when exactly, but he started playing this instrument called the Imbira. And uh, it's so crazy sounding and looking. And it's this lap. It's like a, a very complicated kalimba kind of thing, like a thumb piano. But with it goes through electronics and he plays it through an amp and looping devices and um, a lot of the music that he creates on his own and a lot of the music that he plays with his dad and creates loops and stuff for his dad is based from that instrument. So uh, the record that he made, Fuchsia Machu Picchu, uh, features that instrument a lot and we're going to talk about that record and the process. And then he's also a fantastic drummer and so we get to talk about his growing up as a drummer literally at the feet of Jim Keltner, who was his dad's right-hand man all through the, you know, um, early 70s, um, through the, well, all through the 70s and 80s and 90s. And then Joaquim started playing with his dad, with Keltner, and then eventually kind of just like took over being Rye's drummer. 
Um, but some of the records that Joaquim has played on of his dad's are um, A Meeting by the River, which was a game-changing world music record, not to mention another one that came out in the late 90s, Buena Vista Social Club, which was a total game-changer and um, really altered the whole concept of world music and sold a gazillion copies, and it was huge. He plays on that. Uh, he played on uh, all the early 2000s um, Rakuda records like Chavez Ravine, My Name is Buddy, I Flathead, election special getting a bit more recent uh, and then last year's the prodigal son now that's where things get really interesting for me is because there's all this sonic crossover between the prodigal son which is rise record from 2018 and joaquin's solo record fuchsia machu picchu which came out whenever it came out 2018 or 2019 maybe they were recorded around the same time with the same people, but it sh- clearly shows Joaquim's influence over the music and his in- involvement is is more than just drumming on these records, obviously, because he's creating the loops, he's creating a lot of textures. So we're going to get into all that stuff and more, and that's coming up momentarily. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I would like to talk to you about all kinds of facets of what you do, but maybe let's start out by talking a bit about your latest solo project, which is, um, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, is called Fuchsia Machu Picchu. And uh, it's the first record that I'm aware of under your personal name um i've been following you for years of course through uh, oh thank you through your dad's records which obviously we'll get to that as well but um i am really interested in the process of what makes an artist who's worked his whole career as a sideman decide they want to record under their own name and i'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how this whole project came together in the first place well it, yeah you know i i one lives their life you, you you sort of like get used to just being who and what you are who you are and what you do and you don't really at least I never really thought too much outside of that and mm-hmm. I'm, I never imagined something else outside of what I do you know like you can just imagine yourself and what right. that is yeah and um, <clears throat> in a way it's it is kind of tied up with the instrument I play because it's it's called an array mbira. And I've played it, an acoustic version of it for probably 20 years now on film scores and okay. on other people's records and stuff like that. And sorry, can you spell that? What is yeah, it? Yeah, it's A R R A Y, like array, like an array of yeah. colors or something. Imbira, M B I R A. Okay. <clears throat> and um, the guy who makes it, named Bill Wesley, he started making solid body electric stereo output versions of it. Okay. And that enabled me to 
play it on stage. Amplified. Amplified. Yeah. And that sort of, since I'm a percussionist, um, I don't play guitar. So, and I, I wasn't about to try to, you know, I think it would be full. First of all, I, it would be depressed, you know, you know, Raikuda's son is playing yeah. guitar. Like, hey, <laughs> hey, guys, how's that gonna go? Yeah. And and I've always been a drummer, so I've been able to. That's that's why I play with him. You know, like right. that's how that's why, I, from a, being a little boy, like just sitting in the his studio with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that that's like a the technical thing is the electric version of the Imbira. But okay. conceptually, it was, it really was two things one was i tell the story live but <laughs> i the song fuchsia machu picchu is about this plant that mm-hmm. that when my wife and i bought a house in this part of town called mount washington north of northeast of la it was just this big dirt two lots filled with just it was like a huge mess and <laughs> um <laughs> neglected and and kind of messed up. It was built actually by Klaus Vormann. Really, the base, yeah. And that's crazy. When we we didn't know that though at the time. And when he's like the fifth Beatle, right, right. And he did the artwork to Revolver, yeah. the cover, and a bunch of stuff. He's and he still does. I mean, he's he's back in in Germany now. But mm-hmm. we bought the house, and I had mentioned to Keltner, to Jim Keltner, at some point, I said we're moving to Mount Washington and we bought a house in Mount Washington. And he said, Oh man, Klaus built a house up there. <laughs> oh man. I remember when we went up there and, you know, telling his story and I said, wow, that's crazy. Not knowing this, we had bought that house and, Holy shit. and it didn't, it's for a long time. It was never known. I mean, he doesn't, I don't, he doesn't come over to our house and I don't, you know, like there was just no, there was no way to make that connection for a long time. Yeah. However, we did find one little poster down in the basement that was still on the wall of his artwork. Oh. And so we were, but it still, it was like, it, it still didn't register uh-huh. because it wasn't his, it was like a Venice, it was like a Venice show where there was Joni Mitchell, all these people played and it just was Klaus Vorman's art. Okay. But we didn't, it still was kind of like a non thing. Yeah. Until a, one day a woman came by with like a long walking stick and she, and she said, Klaus Vorman built this house. Really? And then we said, oh my goodness, this is the house we've been hearing about. <laughs> and then did, did Keltner verify it? Well, <laughs> it was just clearly, I mean, it's, it, it it's very hand, it's, he hand built it. So it's very like, um, there's big, it's very rustic. Wow. It is like way rustic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's just a funny backstory on the house we bought. Then we said we need to start putting plants in here and do some things. So we went. And as we're walking the aisles of Home Depot or whatever, we found a plant called Fuchsia Machu Picchu. And we okay. just thought, that is a great sounding plant. And yeah, it, we, it sounds too crazy to be real, even. Right. That's what we, that's kind of, we're like, who would, who, how do you make a fuchsia varietal (laughs) called Machu Picchu? I don't know. It just was like, yeah, let's get that. Yeah. We, at the time we didn't know anything about native plants or what should be planted where and soil or anything. So we were just like, 
put it in the backyard. And I just got into this thing every day where I would go out there and water it. And it's so dry. It's so smoggy. There's freeways everywhere. And I just thought, I have, I just started singing to it and found myself just every day doing this thing where I was just singing this Fuchsia Machu Picchu song. Cool. And, then, and then it wasn't until we left LA and we were in Nashville, my wife and I, yeah. working, producing a record for a friend of ours. And I brought the electric and beer and I just started singing the Fuchsia Machu Picchu song fully fully realized fully realized wow that's and, wicked <laughs> and like in nashville i came up with a chorus for it and i did this yeah. whole thing um quietly in the room in the house we were renting not yeah. like four people but it was just i think the fact that we were i was not in i was in a different town yeah and i think when you change your surroundings that can totally have a inspirational impact yeah, yeah. i think i just saw myself i didn't I just was in a different place and I thought nobody knows that I'm not the guy that just sings Fuchsia Machu Picchu for people. Like <laughs> who's to say I don't do this. Right. And that's kind of the zone that so, I found myself so had, getting into. Had you not been a songwriter before? Like, was that the first? No, song? never. Really? That was the first song you ever wrote? Yeah. Crazy. And, and that's, that, that was the first, yeah. And I never sung, I sung, I sing harmony yeah. in, in bands that I've been in over the years, but I've never, it was very, I don't know. It was so just completely just happened. Wow. And the, this, the take I sang on the record was the very first take. Like it was just very, just like, this is, this is who the, this is the Fuchsia Machu Picchu guy. Yeah. So what, so what about the rest of the material? Like how did that all come together? The rest of it came together when we had our, our, for our, our daughter, who's now four years old. Yeah. And she was a big, I think becoming a dad that really changed the way I look at things and the way you look at yourself. It's like, it just becomes not about you or or what you think of who you are or all that. It's just, it just something changed. And a lot of our days spent, you know, everything has a story. She comes up with little inanimate objects, our family, like a coat hanger. If there's four coat hangers, then it's a mom and a dad. (laughs) <laughs> and two kids like everything becomes a family or a right. story or people or characters sure. and you it it got me just in a different zone of storytelling and so a lot of the stuff that i wrote about is stuff she said mm-hmm. or the little things that she'll say and i'll turn it into a thing or flip it or do something and yeah i've got a daughter too and and they can be a a wellspring of Oh yeah. Awesome. Quotes. I mean, you just have to just be, be there. Yeah. Be be present and your your mind can be blown on a daily basis. <laughs> so what was the what was the window of time like for you to put a whole album's worth of material together then? It was a pretty long it took a while to, and and all I did I just put it was just seven songs. Yeah, yeah. But it took so long to find the time to right. get away for a little bit and go up to our friend who engineers all our records and does everything with we do it my dad me my wife we always work with um martin pradler is his name right and um so where's his place he's up in chatsworth and that's north of la which, or something it's 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 like a 45 minute drive okay so it just 
you know, freeways, everything's that's like that's where where are you by the way? I'm in Nashville. Oh wow. Yeah. Are you gonna be there for Americana Fest? Uh part of it. I'm playing up in Canada in the early part of the week and then I'll be down for like the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oh shoot. Are you are you around? We're I'm do I'm playing I'm playing on Tuesday. Oh, are you? Okay. But um yeah, so it was it was a lot of driving and also just finding the time to let ideas yeah, percolate. So, so tell me about the process of making the record. Cause I, one of the things that I find really interesting about it, I've listened to it quite a few times and, and, and the like sonically for a first album, especially, although, I mean, I know you've been making records for a long time, but you know, as, as an artistic statement, it's kind of your first album. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like there's a lot of sonic experimentation, which doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right but to me it sounds like you really spent time like it doesn't sound like you just set up and had a band and played it sounds to me like you really worked on some layers and textures and stuff yeah. like that so can yeah you, yeah can you tell me about like how like how much time did you spend on the whole project and and what the sessions were like a little bit well mostly mostly it's myself and martin and then my dad played some banjo and guitar and some bass here and there. Okay. But it's, it would be pieces. I would do some stuff in our own little studio. Yeah. And then, and then I just have like little papers of lines of lyrics kind of like floating around the bedroom. And, yeah. And then I kind of will pick up a piece of paper and be like, Oh, that <laughs> actually makes, maybe that's what that is. And then I'll plug it into something. And then, so it was it was a it was it was like pieces pieces okay. here pieces over at Martin's back yeah. here back there and then some of it I I hear I have like little voice memo recordings of coming up with a line while I'm sitting in the little like baby pen with my daughter <laughs> like I hear like there's just like talking but I I know like I have a little idea and mm-hmm. it's about to go forever if I don't right um, right <laughs> put it down yeah, yeah. So your tracks, like with the Embira and and your vocals and all that kind of stuff, was that was that um, done gradually as well, or did you kind of was that like a a basic thing that you laid down and then worked on top of that? I would take something from Martin's probably and then conceptualize it and then go back. Okay. And then do the finishing things yeah. and then bring in somebody else, like either my dad or my yeah. wife, to sing harmony and okay that. So it was, yeah, it was, it was like a back and forth process. So I was also trying to put my finger on, like, when I was listening to it, I was trying to kind of identify musically where you're coming from. And, you know, some things are more obvious than other than others, but like, and songwriting wise, I can sort of hear, you know, where you're coming from. But, but I, I just wondered, like, overall, artistically, um, were you, you know, like, in a way, maybe stuff like something like the Latin Playboys where it's kind of like small songs with like really abstract, weird sonic elements to it seems to be maybe something that's cool, but it's hard for me to really like point it at even a style of music and say like, this is where this comes from. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it comes from just my whole life of being, of just hearing Growing up, hearing the music that I heard, yeah, um, and 
it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but I think I grew up going around with my dad and and being exposed to strange, cool blues music and African music. Yeah. And uh, I and just like weird people <laughs> in general, <laughs> like stuff yeah. that's not that can't be, you know, when you and I think the Internet has changed this because everything is everybody has access to everything yeah. and vice versa. But when I was younger, I feel like I would go with him to, you know, like. And I mean, really, like when I was maybe like eight or something to yeah. the Atlanta Rhythm and Blues Festival, mm -hmm. which now I don't know what that would mean. That could mean just maybe that could be exactly like every other festival. But I remember at the time, like you would see a band where these guys were country people who had their completely own way of doing everything. Like the drummer yep. was like backwards and upside down with like the way he played they are doing their thing having no idea what anybody else is doing. Right. I love that kind of thing. That was very inspirational to me. Uh -huh. Not even knowing that, like I probably as like an eight year old couldn't right. totally just sort of put that into imprinted yeah. itself on your psyche. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And then we once got a VHS tape of this guy named Juju Doxy. Uh -huh. who, uh, I, I mean, I always think of him, he played in Imbira he was from Mississippi and he was, I don't even think he was, I think he was like squatting in this house and it was just, he, I think he played it like upside down and <laughs> was complete, but it was the most beautiful otherworldly song. I must've listened to it just a million times and tried to, tried to take it and write new lyrics and just, and this was probably in high school. And I think it was just these kinds of people Oh uh, yeah, that that I just got into this zone that I never got out of. Okay, yeah, I like, get it. You know, there's also like there's you know some of the techniques like there's a lot of double tracking of vocals on the on your record and mm -hmm. and a lot of sort of lush harmonies and stuff like that. Um, like, are bands like the Beach Boys also like influential for you or not really? You know, I I I love the Beach Boys, but not. I don't think I ever got heavy duty. Like, you know, I have friends who probably will be like, you know, pet sounds, this and right. that kind of thing. And I, I've never been, <clears throat> I listened to a lot of Everly brothers, oh, okay. <laughs> but that was a big, when I was little. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always love to hear if when somebody hears something and then mentions it, it I'm always, I always love hearing that because it's, always it's endlessly fascinating right for you for you to make any reference yeah i'm always like oh wow that's crazy it's hard with your music like it's it's actually really not that that's all i want to do but but it is you know as a as a music nerd that i am i i like to have some sort of reference point and i i totally. find i find that hard with your music partly because of the <laughs> instrument you're playing and right and and then just like melodically and sonically it's pretty unusual i i, I think i think it's an awesome record Thank you so much. Yeah. That's so cool. So before we before we talk about anything else, we, we haven't really talked about the Imbira. And can you tell me like what the hell's going on with that thing? Like it's like an it, it's it's kalimba like, right? Mm -hmm. But what's going on with it? 
Well, he the it's it's not set up like a chromatic thing, and it's it goes up in fifths, so it's very modal <clears throat> and lends itself to that. That's I've been also playing a lot of old banjo music on yeah. it because okay. some of the some of the people like Doc Boggs, yeah, or that kind of minor key modal sort of spooky music just it just kind of goes there this amazing man builds them and they're it's like taking the little imbira or kalimba like you say the little african thing and just making it like the galactic version like what's there on your lap you've got it's it's all on one resonant chamber and then there's like a series of of little thumb keys is that what it is yeah basically okay. sure yeah and and they kind of, they go down in octaves and then up in fifths how many keys are there on it you know i don't know because okay. i kind of stay in these little positions that where my voice i stay in certain keys and yeah. depending on how wide or close your hands are it gets either more dissonant or more it's it's a it's just an it's it's you have to completely throw away any kind of chromatic um, imperial you know pianoish way of thinking. Is it's, it is it goes, tuned in in tones or is it like tuned all in like in quarter tones and weird stuff too? No, it's all very pure notes. Okay. There's no it doesn't go quarter tone. Okay. Wow, interesting. Yeah. When did you start playing it? How did you get into it? I think we found him through because th- there's a whole sort of world of instrument makers who there's a name for it now, and I can't think of what it's called. That's they lay lay things out not chromatically, and there's like they get way deep into theory about it. And yeah, this this guy Bill has things with colors and stuff that either makes no sense to anybody. But him yeah. or I just don't understand. It. Like I'm not <laughs> sure which it is. But but there's no there's no traditional precedent for this instrument in like traditional African music or anything other than its connection to the kalimba, right? Right. Okay. And I think there was we maybe I think we might have found somebody at the Nam show a million years ago down in the basement who built this crazy floor slide. It's like a humongous the thing, slide guitar. The thing your dad plays. Yeah. Okay. And I think through that person, then oh. we stumbled upon Bill Wesley. And so it's part of this world of, of kind of... Um, Whacked out builders. Mm-hmm, right. Okay. So you started playing this thing, and then, and then like, how did it become like your main voice? It's just such an unusual path. Because I don't play a guitar, yeah. and it's so cinematic, and I've, you, I do film scoring every now and then and yeah. i used it a lot once i was able to plug it into like an old guitar amp and kind of make it distort a little bit it yeah. achieved the sound it was, i was like this is my little jujudoxy sound okay like i'm i'm here now okay and so i'm gonna and that's you know that was kind of my the fuchsia machu picchu song and right, it's, it's right. all it became it became like a state of it's like a state of mind almost when you play it for me it's it almost has like a washington phillips vibe too in a way although that's it's a totally different you know thing, but that's so you know 
I'm first of all, I love Washington Phillips, and that's the set. You're the second person who said that. I got that comment actually three times now. When I played live, somebody mentioned that afterwards because his instrument is so uh, unusual as well. It sure it's like is. Yeah. that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you combine the Mbira with maybe a stringed instrument, like the banjo or something, you get very Washington Phillipsy. Right, right. Now let's talk about drums for you. So, um, you know, I've, I've known of your name since I don't know, I don't know what the first record of your dad's that you played on, but tell me a bit about how you got into drums, like as a kid. And I, I mean, I'm dying to know about your relationship with, with Jim Keltner. Cause you must've just grown up. He must've just been a guy that was like your uncle or some weird thing. That's the way I picture it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me a, a bit about drumming for you and your relationship with Keltner. Okay. He, he I think it was well, I was just always, as a little boy, in the early, early years, especially it was like the early 80s, and when they would record or be sound checking or something, I would, it seemed to me that Jim's set was this humongous thing that I could <laughs> crawl inside. And there was, there was electronics, you know, there was like Simmons pads. Yeah and weird racks of things that were being triggered. Yeah. And it just seemed there was lights and he put colored tape on everything. And it was just this kind of jungle gym. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I would get in there somehow, like uh -huh. literally in inside his kit. And I think at one point he said that I like scared him because he kind of was came to sort of as he was playing and saw me looking up at him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was, um, I, it was, it was all him who got me. So uh, I was, I never, the guitar never once it, I love the guitar, but it never spoke to me as it was never, it did not choose me. Like I was huh. not there. Yeah. Um, I think it was during my dad's records slide area yep. that he had left a kit in our house where they were working every day. And then it, he would leave it overnight, of course, and I'm going to take it away. And so I would go in at night and play on it. And then when he came in the morning and I was playing and he saw me playing, he gave me a set because he saw that I could play. Cool. That's a pretty good um, place to get a first kit from. Yeah, it's a re <laughs> it's a called a Remo PTS. It's like this little white <laughs> drum set. Wow, I still have it. You do, <laughs> cool. and he actually borrowed it back for um, the film score they did together called Johnny Handsome. Really, I know that. Which has which has a great the drum sound on that. I love. I love that, that too. Kit. Yeah, yeah. That's like the, that's like a kid's kit, like well, kids kid sizes, or was it like a full size kit? It's full size, but it's very thin. It's very light. It's like okay. very. It's just yeah. It's something. It's almost like not a kid's, but not full. I don't know. It's like just. I don't know what it is. The more I think about it, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, so that's sort of the era that you first have musical memories of, I guess, is sort of like mid 80. Like, I don't know how old you are exactly, but, but I'm 40. I'll be 41 in August. So I was probably like four or five. Okay. Okay. In 
in 82, 83. Right. That's when I remember first really starting to play the drums. Okay. And then, so like, what was the progression for, for you? Like, was your, was your dad kind of like egging you on to, to, um, to play drums or anything, or was it just like something totally, um, inspiring for you as a, as a kid? And that's what you wanted to do. I, yeah, I think it was just very natural. There was never any, no pressure. The kit. Yeah, no, the kit was there and yeah. I would go in and play with him when, if he was playing, Yeah, if he was practicing or something. And then, <clears throat> and then it wasn't until, and then I started having my own bands. I remember in elementary school like, and like uh, rock bands or what kind of music were you yeah, into? Yeah. 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 Okay. Bands you would have with other kids. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so that was, that was pretty funny. Um, but we, you know, they, we practiced and we did stuff and played at like the school, you know, talent show probably. Yeah. I think in fourth grade, we had a band called Endangered Species. Nice. That was our big, that was our big name. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were growing up like in the Santa Monica area. Is that where you're, is that where yeah. you guys were? Okay. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned like around that era that they were working your dad and Keltner were working in your house. Did you did you guys have a studio in your house? Mm, yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. The house, yeah, it was it was the local firehouse before my parents bought it. Really? So there was the lower part was this big like everything was upstairs, the yeah. kitchen, bedrooms, living room, it was all upstairs and then downstairs was kind of these large rooms. Yeah. Where I guess the fire engines were. That was the the studio at the time no shit that's yeah crazy yeah uh and that's where they did all like is that where they did a bunch of those soundtracks well johnny hansen was down there but at that point an outside studio got built okay and it's really just ryan jim uh -huh. i think mostly just in there i know that the slide area was at least some work was done there because that's why they were there with the kit. I don't know. And that was your main house where you grew up as a kid or was that just for yeah, a couple of years? That's no, they're still there. Really? Yeah. It probably sounds amazing in there. Again, I think Johnny Anzim is one of the coolest sounding and just vibe wise. I always there's, thought so too. There's, there's other soundtracks that your dad did that get more attention, but, but Oh, that, totally. That that's one, probably the least. I know. What's that attended. all about? I think because he always says like four people saw that movie. <laughs> it like closed in, in one weekend. Okay. <laughs> I actually, I, I must admit, depressing. I never, I never did see the movie, but I, I, you know, I, I, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of your dad. So I, oh, I had like all that, I had all the soundtrack stuff, not to mention all the records, but the soundtrack stuff that Johnny handsome one to me really spoke to me. Like the sonically, it was great. And it had cool yeah. guitar sounds and all that stuff. It's like dark Walter Hill noir. Nobody wins, everybody dies. Like it was a Walter it's, Hill it's, film. Yeah, it's oh, rough. Okay. Yeah, Ellen Barkin is gnarly. Uh, Lance Henriksen. Actually, it's pretty fresh now that I think about it. Yeah, I got. I got to check it out. <laughs> it's not an easy one to find. No, it's it's pretty obscure. <laughs> so back to your little world when you when you're playing in rock bands and stuff as a as a kid with in. Is it endangered species? Endangered species, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, where does that lead to? Like, do you were you playing a lot as a teenager, and like, did you did you start 
playing in bands and touring? And did you ever do that whole thing or not so much? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. For at at one point, we, my wife and I, had a band together, and we've in our twenties. Mm-hmm. I mean, we toured in, in our fifteen passenger van, and we stayed on people's floors, and you did got into some gnarly situations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what was that band called? We had two names. We were first called Virginius, yeah, and. <laughs> Then I we became it. Hello Stranger when we changed it. But okay. it was, I mean, we we really, it was fresh. I mean, we were. Was it just it was the two great. of you? Mm, we were a three-piece and then a four-piece. We were, our guitar player played um, Moog Taurus pedals with his feet. Oh, cool. And then we added a bass player. Yeah. But it was, we had a, a really good wild run yeah. for a while. <laughs> Did you make records? Yeah, we put out one record as Hello Stranger. You did? Okay. I'll have to see if I can track that down. And then made three records under my wife's name, Juliette Commagere. Okay. And she still records, but since we have two kids now, that Curtailed sort a of bit. slowed down. But yeah. hopefully that'll pick up back up again. You know, we, we've talked a bit about Keltner, but like, was he a, an ongoing presence through your, through like in your early 20s and stuff? Did you still see him a lot? And was he still like an inspiration to you as a drummer? Um, I wouldn't, we probably didn't see each other that much, um, but definitely still an inspiration nonetheless. Yeah. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. We went, we did the, a couple, he came to Cuba with us one year, uh-huh. I think for the Manuel Galba, the Mambo Sinuendo record. We got to talk about that record. That's a great record. It is a great record. It's one of yeah. my favorites of all time. Yeah, me too. Okay. Tell me about that record. Well, that was is one of the ones done in the we had this year, one year Clinton on his last day in office gave us this gave my dad this kind of like one year license to go to Cuba as much as he wanted which was a good thing because once Bush came into office it was like yeah right everything got shut down I mean there was no chance that would ever happen again yeah uh, how, like why and how? Like was your dad petitioning for that to happen? Or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he had to. Okay. He had to because once Buena Vista became kind of high profile, yeah, it put him. It had like an adverse reaction because then people knew. Like he couldn't just secretly. It it, it was too risky to kind of do art because when we did those records, we went through Cancun and nobody really cared. But then once it became popular, it was, I think his lawyer said, you can't risk, you, you could be way in trouble. I'm kind of surprised that somebody just didn't show up and arrest him. I, well, it was pretty, I mean, I, I, I guess it was maybe low enough on, on a low enough priority to where they wouldn't send out. I, I guess maybe it, had he kept going, it might have gotten a little iffy. Yeah, yeah. But we went, he went, I know my parents went to like fundraisers and tried to get a minute, a second with with Bill Clinton and be like, you know, you, you get a second with him and right. and that's it. So I, whatever they did worked to get this license. Okay. So this is post Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah. Um, and uh, okay, so maybe just back up a little bit. 
you you were involved in Buena Vista Social Club, right? Right, right. Okay, so tell me a bit about how that all came together. I mean, I know your dad was interested in the music and and knew some of the guys and Manuel Galban's one of those guys and all the all the things that sprung forth out of that project. I, I mean, everyone kind of knows all about that. It was a huge thing, but um, at the time, it probably just felt like a sort of a small, obscure world music concept, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I I think it was even it was even more obscure, even conceptually, because the plan, which was nickeled from World Circuit's idea, who put out um, the Talking Timbuktu record, right? He then <clears throat> came to Rye and said how he wanted to do a thing where they explore the. Um, African and Cuban sort of music relationship from, you know, like where that all merges or what came from what. And, yeah. and so bring some African musicians to Cuba. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And okay. would you like to be a part of that? And Ryan said, yeah. So we went down thinking that was going to happen. But then they, the Africans, didn't get their visas and so oh. we're everybody's in Egrim Studios, but half of the people who were supposed to record didn't show up. So then <laughs> really? they, yeah, they put out the the word like, and I'm talking like uh, word of mouth style, like on the streets. Yeah. Rai said, "Can we go find some '40s some?" pre-revolutionary musicians who do the old good thing. Was he aware of those people? Like, did he know who Eliadis Ochoa was at that point? Or this is all before he heard any of those names? I don't know. I mean, Ibrahim walked out of complete obscurity. I mean, that was totally like... Amazing. Real. That was not, you know. So I don't know about Eliadis. That's a good question. But he came from a different part of the island. Like, he... Yeah, he was more like Santiago, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know which one of them, if any of them, were supposed to be on the initial thing or okay. who was originally scheduled. I actually have no idea. At the time, you just kind of were going <laughs> places. So what was this experience like for you? Like, were you just sitting there going, like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> like, what was, what, was, what was your role in the whole thing? Well, I brought some of my funny things. You know, my I have this clay pot voodoo drum, which is yeah. the, a a pretty recognizable sound on Chan Chan that yep. boom, boom, little things that can travel easily. And mm-hmm. they probably don't have in that are not Cuban, which was just, you know, I'm not going to come down there with like my timbales. Right. <laughs> like, right. I mean, they, these guys are like the ultimate guys. Yeah. So you kind of have to come with your, your funny little side thing. And they were so gracious and everybody, was it intimidating doing that or was it just, were they totally fine and cool about like you guys incorporating your thing into their thing? 
they were totally fine and cool and liked it. Yeah. And there was no problem. Okay. Because there were, there, I feel like people of a certain, there's certain kinds of people that you find all over the, you know, the Cubans especially are so warm and, and, and inviting. If, if if they thought it was really goofy, they didn't say anything. They didn't. They kept <laughs> that they were being polite. But uh, and yeah. was, did Keltner play on that record too? No, he 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 came for I think Ibrahim's second record. Okay, called Buenos Hermanos. As far as the actual sessions at e, at Egram on that on the first, the original one of us, the Social Club record that went yeah. bananas. Uh, was that done like that must have been done all live, right? Like you guys were all just set up in the room and Yeah, that was that was all live and then probably my dad did some overdubbing. Mm-hmm. Maybe some stuff was done back home, like some little little touches here and there. But yeah. The the most of it was just right there as you hear it. And then that thing just goes absolutely bananas with the movie and the concerts yeah. and, and and just far surpasses any expectation. Right. It sort of redefines the whole trajectory of world music as we know oh, it yeah, in a way completely. at the time. Yeah. Um, and then, and then did you get swept up like in, have in, were, were you touring all over the place with that too? Like, was that part of no, what you No, we only, we only were played on just the two shows in the movie, Carnegie oh, okay. Hall and yeah. the Curé Theater in Amsterdam. That was it. They, okay. they toured endlessly and yeah. still do. Yeah, I Some know. iteration of it is still going around the world. That was a spectacular record, and and I found it really fascinating. But um, if we can just swerve over to that Manuel Galban record, that one oh, to yeah. me that kicked my ass, and yeah, I would I love, love to one. just hear about a little bit about maybe the repertoire and and the sounds on that record, where it was done, and and um, you know, were you were you was there any like plan to go for a certain kind of retro vibe that that record has or yeah just tell me a bit about it well i think cuba well galvan it's really it was about him and and his the band he was in los zafiros los zafiros their their sound is that thing it really is yeah and so my dad was just loved him personally and loved the band and and they were they were just so cool together and and it i think they just had some song ideas and mm-hmm. we went in there with a bunch of we went back down to cuba with keltner that time so there was he had his drum set and i brought a bunch of funny little like toy drum sets okay. and and then of course there was stuff like the song mambo sinuendo was where i got herb albert to play trumpet on it which was so fresh i mean it was just a a wild thing that started there and then finished back here tell me about you as a drummer how you deal with playing with somebody like keltner i've spoken to a few people i've had a couple people on this show actually like um jay bellaros and um he sort of has this take on playing with 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 keltner that was really interesting and i'm just wondering how you as somebody that you know, sort of grew up around him. You obviously don't, you, you, you weren't strangers, like you knew him quite well. Um, how do you approach playing two drummers? Like, it sounds like you sort of took more of a percussion approach, so that might yeah, be the answer. I but. mean, yeah, I would, <clears throat> I brought 
things that were all oddball things okay. that were not going to get in the way. Two, two drum sets, I don't... Especially, well, you also have to think about the what the project is. So mm-hmm. it is a percussive thing. We're in Cuba, and it's... Yeah, it's the record we're making is not two rock drummers really, right? And so with Kellner on that record, I mean, I, I think I just played around him and played sparingly, and I also was, I think we kind of did some interesting little sampling there oh, yeah. and did little cool things that way. I mean, that's how the song Mambo Sinuendo is itself. It's all. A thing it's all stems from a it comes from an mpc thing i made oh really okay yeah all that like ding dong dong ding dong dong ding yeah. is all that's that's galban but kind of sampled and oh. played played a little it's just done you know it's it's chopped up right yeah and I then people play on it and that's why it kind of has that cool Part, feel. part electronic, part yeah, yeah. organic sound. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever have a discussion with Keltner about what to do, or do you guys just sit down and do it? We just sit down yeah. and do it. You just play. Yeah. Um, what did Jay Bellarose say? He, he basically I, or I could said, just listen, but... he basically <laughs> said that he would go like entire chunks of the song without playing at all. And then he would play like a kick drum on a downbeat and and then he would sort of like work his way in and then he'd go back to not playing at all and you know he was he basically let keltner steer the ship but what was what were they both playing on do you remember there's like a series of t-bone brunette records where they're both on full kit oh, okay uh on the full on the whole record oh okay and even right. even um some of t-bone's solo records the two of them are drumming huh and some of those records have three drummers there's a uh, Wow, that's a lot of a lot of drumming. Yeah, or maybe like, it isn't. Depending <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I mean, it's different from like the Almond Brothers or something, where there's two drummers like grooving away. It's more. Sure. I think I think Jay Bellarose took your kind of approach, where he sort of pictured himself more as a percussion color, right. co- the color commentator around Keltner's um, freight train. Very cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I, I I love that record, that man, Mambo Sinuendo. I thought that was an amazing one. Um, oh, thank you. And were you involved in that Mavis Staples record that, that Rye produced? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was your role in that record? That one, I think, is super cool because two of the tracks are also my an MPC thing of mine. Oh, um, cool. Okay. One which, is uh, Down in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, which, it's 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 like... Yeah. And the the kick and snare is I found on a cassette. That's Keltner from a count off. <laughs> it's I think he goes like boom, bah, and then the song starts. I found it on a cassette, so it's all like it just is. I don't I don't I don't know what record they were doing. So then I just took that and just it's that that becomes the drums for the Mavis record for that song for um, down in Mississippi. Like that's the track or that was, that was like, that's the, the tr- I mean, he, they, everybody plays around it, but played to it. Okay. The whole, all the, um, is just all wicked stuff that I found and made. And then I put like an eight Oh eight hi hat over it and 
did this. It's a, I, I love that one. And the other one is, um, dun, dun. oh, 99 and a half. Oh yeah. That's a good one too. That's a sample I made of a, like, um, like a Vietnamese, this Vietnamese guitar player that goes, that just plays that. And it's just the, I just thought it was just the most badass little wow. loop. Um, and then, well, that's the thing with with ra- with my dad is that he hears these things I make and loves to just be like, "Hey, let's use this." How did those end up on the Mavis record? What, is it like that where he just heard them and he's like, "Hey, this would be cool"? Yeah. Or did you sit down yeah. and try and come up with them for the project? He's always loved when, like, when Keltner would make loops mm-hmm. for. I know he did it a lot in. Well, they did him. They Little Village has a bunch of Keltner yep. sequences, right. and for film scores, like he, my dad likes to work off of that because okay. there's little funny implied melodies, and you pick out things, and it just makes you, it just sort of like can just jumpstart a something in your mind instead of just sitting down and yeah. having to wrestle all ideas out of nothing there will be a bunch of times where um, I just have things going mm-hmm. um, and he'll walk in and say, Oh, like, let's, let's get these over here. Do this. That's yeah. on, on his uh, drive. Like, do you know, drive, like I've never been hurt. Yes. That's that, that's the same. That's how that came about. Oh, okay. um, so a bunch of them, we just keep doing it. And on the, on the latest one, he, on the um, prodigal son, there's a bunch that started that way. Yeah, could you tell me a bit about that record? Because that, like, there's there's quite a bit of sonic fingerprint from that record to your record that yeah. I, find, I found really interesting. Because totally, well, I, it's a I, lot of Imbira loops. Okay, so yeah, so tell me about that process and how you do it and and how you incorporate that into your and his music. I have my pedal board, yeah, with a with with one of those big like Boss looping yep. pedals, and so I just kind of sit there a lot playing the Imbira and the nail this this nail violin he makes too the same guy it's like nails sent it's an array of nails that you just rub wow so you get it's like no attack but just this little sound so i'm looping that and doing stuff and then at the time we were living next door to my parents so i would be in his his studio a bunch because i would have nowhere else to work and then he would kind of just walk in and sit there and then quietly kind of start singing something. And then he would say, can I, can I have that one? (laughs) And then I would be like, Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to maybe do something. No, but no, you said you should take it. (laughs) But you're a recruiter. So you get it. Uh, Yeah. Let's, and then, and that's how like, um, a really pretty one, um, Harbor of Love. Oh yeah. The old uh, Stanley brothers tune. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. So there was, it's, it was the set, you know, it was the same setup that I had going for my stuff. It was the same, it was just kind of the same time frame, overlap of, of time. And, and were know, they I'm done in the, were thing. they done in the same place up in that studio? Um, yeah, I guess so. Cause they do, I mean, he they sonically yeah. are, are similar, I think. Well, yeah. I then, they probably were because for the most part 
Rye goes up to Martin's just like right. I do. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So for Prodigal Son, like, do you do you suddenly just get a call one day from your dad and he's like, "It's time to make a record," or is it the kind of thing where you're just kind of like experimenting and eventually there is a record? How does that all come together? I think it's more the latter. Uh-huh. Like, we're he he comes in and hears something that he likes, and then maybe. I guess it's always a little different um, because this one was conceptually going to be these old songs for the most part. Right. Whereas the other ones were like I flathead and buddy, the cat, like those were more written as pieces conceptual. Yeah. So he, he might have something in his mind. And then when he hears some of these things that I'm doing, then he, that points the way maybe to how he wants to do it. Okay like when you recorded prodigal son so it sounds like it was done over like sort of a longer period of time rather than just a short session is that is that accurate yeah i think if there was ever a full band playing we would go into a a studio yeah um to overdub drums Mm -hmm. and make it more you know a little more of a bigger sound yeah but so there would be, yeah, I guess it was a longer period of time where sometimes he's just up at Martin's by himself or we're all in a studio with the full band. And and is what you're playing on there drum-wise, is it pretty traditional drum kit? Like there's some pretty interesting textures in there drum-wise. So what's going on with that? Yeah, I think I probably just had... I've it's It's usually the same sort of thing where it's a combination of percussion and a, a kit yeah and a, a nice old kit of some sort and and then some odd oddball things that you stick in there yeah like inspired by keltner maybe way back in in the early days and then you've gone on to build your own world yeah yeah definitely and then definitely. and then do you mic it up in a traditional way or do you have some way of working with with your engineer where it's like you're really going for specific sounds or how do you he that's always that we never talk about how things get mic'd okay i'm martin just does whatever he does yeah and i never second guess it right because i don't know about that kind of stuff is he like is he like <laughs> that with your dad with guitar too or like i feel like your dad must be more hands-on about his actual guitar sounds right or does well i mean at this point martin Nobody really needs to say anything to Martin about anything. Okay. Like it's pretty, everybody's pretty dialed in. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, it's really hard for Rye to go elsewhere. Right. And have to begin a whole like language. Yeah. I get it. Cause there's no, you know, it's too, there, it's too deep at this point. Yeah. Yeah. We're in too deep. <laughs> so it's been, it's been like 20 years or something you've worked together. Yeah. 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 That's all. That's, yeah. There's a lot going on in there that, yeah, that that's hard to recreate elsewhere. As far as you go as a sideman, like obviously you've played with your dad for basically your entire career. Um, yeah. Do you have aspirations to be doing other sideman stuff, or is that just like that sort of fulfills that end of things for you? No, I always am very happy when somebody calls and says, you know, would you like to play on a record or go on a tour or something? Yeah. 
Um, so I'm always, yeah. From my experience, <laughs> and I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine, this guy Fats Kaplan, who he played with, he was in Jack White's oh. band for a while, and now he plays with John Prine. And he has this issue where people sort of um, associate him at, you know, a few years ago it was with Jack White, and now it's with Prine, where they just sort of assume that he's off the market, and so they don't call him. And he's sort of like, hey, I'm over here, guys. <laughs> Why do I... His name, why does his name rings a bell? Fats in a way may where- have played with you at the Americana Awards when you were playing there a couple of years ago. He was he was probably in the house band with Buddy Miller. Oh, he might have been playing steel or fiddle. Okay, yeah, that must be it. Yeah, you've definitely played with him. You don't forget that name. <laughs> no, and he's a he's a skinny little dude. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe I'm. Maybe people think I'm off the market. <laughs> but you're not, and you want to work. I'm not. Let, let the world know. Joaquin Cooter is back on the market. <laughs> he never left the market. That's place. good to know, man. Actually, you yeah. know, yeah. I, I I love your drumming. I'd love to do something with you one of these days. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. It's funny, because in Nashville, I, I I was there for only briefly here and there. and But I get more calls for sessions there than I do in LA. Well, I, I actually funny. heard that you lived here. I, the rumor was out that you were living here. So that's obviously not true, but that's what I'd heard. Well, we were there for a chunk of time. It didn't go for too long because then we, it's like we were, we couldn't have our, we couldn't uproot. If we were to have a baby in Nashville and then our, both of our families were here, yeah. it would be so insane forever it'd be like what are you doing like we couldn't rob them of the finally they had get grandchildren and we're like bye yeah yeah so we had to i think it was just too hard to rally i did rally though i did try to make that happen okay but, well maybe that maybe that rumor got spread to the point where it became reality for some people <laughs> but even though the people thought i was there i still wasn't getting enough like it didn't translate. Even the lie of me living there didn't translate <laughs> into getting that much work there. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, I've, I mean, I've I've heard that that there's you know it's few and far between the amount of records these days that are being made in L.A. compared to Nashville. Like I know. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. It seems like there's there's definitely a lot of soundtrack work going on in in L.A., but more of the of the records that are being done seem to be sort of gravitating more towards this end of the country, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Can you just tell me a bit about your soundtrack work? Like, is that something that you've done a lot of? I mean, a few. I've, they, I would, when they come up, it, it's a lot of, it's been a lot of documentaries and, oh, yeah. and, um, a really, the latest one was called Charged, mm-hmm. the Eduardo Garcia story. Okay. And it's about this guy who, it's about Eduardo Garcia, and he is this Montana mountain man, yeah. and he comes across a open, like a this bin with a bear inside of it, and he doesn't realize at the time he goes to touch it that the bear has been electrocuted and it's on a live power source. Oh my god! So when he goes to touch the bear, something like a million volts of electricity, not a million, I don't know, just shoot through, they blows off his arm and he's been like part of his body and he walks out of the mountains and he's this incredible guy and he, he stumbles down from wherever he was and finds help. And yeah, 
so that was I find myself doing kind of like outdoorsy surf sportsy kind of this niche that I didn't seek it out it just I get I did a Burning Man documentary and then and and do you do you compose for film mostly with the Ambira or how do you do it Mm, no I mean I I definitely always try to put it on there because it's just so pleasing yeah but um I use a bunch I do a bunch of different things like sonic stuff with sampling and um and then real instruments and I bring people on if I need you know other things that I don't do yeah but I have a little crew of people that I work with who and we accept sort of all we cover enough bases to where it always works yeah how come your dad doesn't do soundtracks anymore? Or maybe he does and I don't know about them, but he well, he, I guess he's not getting he's not getting the calls like he used to. He it's not it's not purposeful. Huh. Cuz that was um, like a there was a chunk there in the 80s where that's basically all he did. Yeah. I just feel like the world the world has changed. Yeah. Um he doesn't it's just like a it's a different world out there and the people that he the people that would maybe want him specifically aren't making movies anymore i don't know so what else is on the on the horizon for you like are you i saw you here um with your with with rye and roseanne cash doing the johnny cash thing which was awesome oh, yeah yeah that was great um oh cool what else is happening like is that an ongoing project or was that just like a, a few shows there's three more and then that'll be that okay that was fun and cool that, I, I like that show oh yeah yeah very cool when you do stuff like that with him, like, do you, is it rehearsed and all worked out or are you kind of just flying by the seat of your pants? Well, that, that needed as much rehearsing as you, as it was able to have yeah. just because of people's schedules right. and everything. But that you kind of can't, you kind of need to come correct. Right. Especially when you get to the rhyme and yeah. it's like, yeah, no doubt. you don't want to come in and, and Mess everything up, and people will say, "Oh boy!" At the Ryman playing Johnny Cash tunes, you can't mess exactly. That up. Yeah, exactly. But I thought your guys' take on it was really interesting and great, and and all the versions were super different and cool. Yeah, that that worked. That was a good night. And and was I would imagine John Leventhal had his hands on or doing quite a bit of arranging with that too, right? Like he probably wasn't passive in that process. Yeah, no, he did especially the really good "I Walk the Line" version. That was that awesome. Was, yeah. Yeah, he that was definitely a Leventhal creation or or conceptualized. I thought the um Don't Take Your Guns to Town song, that arrangement was amazing too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, so that's just a finite thing that's happening a few more times. And then and then do you, are, are is there more stuff with your like your dad's been so enigmatic in the last twenty years. Like, you know, as a fan, I was, you know, coming up, I saw Little Village's last concert. Um in whatever it was, it was probably 92 or something. Uh, and then he kind of like, he never played live as far. I, I grew up in Vancouver and there was no, like he never did any gigs around up until like five years ago. Uh, but it's, right. it seems like he's sort of getting his touring mojo back a little bit. Is that something that you're doing more and more of or what's happening? Well, we were doing more and more of it and now we're going to do less and less. Of it. Oh, really? Um, okay. <laughs> 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 and actually, fun, um, funnily enough, your your mom, I she, long story, but Colin Nairn, who I'm sure you know, yeah, is sure. a, is an old friend of mine from Vancouver, and he oh, funny. he brought me into the gig you guys were doing at Third Man a few years ago, and oh, with the Hayden sisters, yes, 
And then, weirdly, I met your mom, and she asked me to take her to go and get sandwiches for people. So so (laughs) I did. I took her out to get sandwiches, and she's like, you gotta, we gotta do something. We gotta get Rye out of the house. Like, he just, he never... He never accepts anything, and he's just got to start playing shows. Oh <laughs> he was God. sort of like harassing me to get him gigs. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and oh, and then the Ricky Skaggs tour, I oh. thought was really great too. That was cool. Yeah. Oh man. So so these things just sort of like pop up every once in a while, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty. It, the the you know he was we did a bunch of Prodigal Son touring. Yeah, and then yeah, a lot actually, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't see the tour unfortunately. But, it was um, it was summer and fall, it was yeah. pretty extensive. I thought it was just too much for him. Us also doing like the big festivals was just it's too. He loves to just be in a more contained something more like the Ryman rather than you know the Edmonton the Folk Edmonton Festival. Folk Festival exactly. That was a prime example of it. Just it was just not gonna work and they were they had were looking at this summer going over to europe and doing like all the big festivals and he just said no we can't do that okay but i think he prefers to just record and do stuff like that yeah i hear you and what or he likes a tour or he likes a tour not as his as a front person he loved doing the ricky show because it was just he got to play music that he loves and be a part of something that's incredible and not have to just do little sister again and right. feel like is this is that was it are we doing it like i don't know it's just yeah i think he just likes to do new things and uh-huh. continue and discover new things and just be a, you know yeah that type of thing yeah and and with your band are you going to be doing a bunch of touring or is that sort of you, you keep that at a minimal level as well well i'm i'm going to do americana fest mm-hmm. with um I, I made a new record of all uncle dave macon songs really yeah. Cool. I'll, it's Yeah, I should. I'll send it to you. Please. That'd be I'll great. I'll send you a link for it. Okay. So I'm going to do a bunch of those songs at Americana Fest. So is that just you, or do you have a band doing them? I'm going to be... It's My dad's going to come and play banjo. Oh, okay. Because um, you got to have banjo for yeah. Uncle Dave. And then Mark Fain, who plays bass, who yeah. played on Rise Tour and the Ricky Tour. Yeah. And then my friend Raina Gellert, who plays... Where Fiddle. I, I know her name from somewhere, but I can't think of. She's in Nashville. Okay. And then a friend of mine, Amy Blaschke, is going to sing oh, cool. harmony. Yeah. So we'll, we're gonna, it's, it's like a special Nashville edition. Nashville only. You're not touring. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I plan to. I mean, I, I recently got an agent. Yeah. And um, they're they're working on 2020. Okay. And so. We'll see. There's been some Canadian. Actually, there's been a couple of Canadian festivals have, you know, come back with a request. Okay. So maybe maybe that's where it's at for me. Maybe those are some good festivals, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. They're you know. they're smaller ones. They're not like Edmonton's. Some cool. I don't remember now which ones it is, but I've played them all. <laughs> I know them all. <laughs> I'll, when I when I find it, I'll, I'll when I send you the stuff, I'll, yeah. I'll mention which one. I usually do a, cu- a few of those every year too, so I'll you know maybe I'll run into you at, at one of these. Yeah, that'd be great. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today and of course talking thank you about for all this stuff. To, thank you for wanting to talk about it. Thanks a lot, Joaquin. I appreciate it, man. Okay. All right. Talk to you Bye. Soon. Bye. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. That was my conversation with Joaquin Cooter. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I love talking to him. It was great to get the skinny on all that stuff. I hope you enjoyed it. Go head on over to Apple Music right now and leave a review. Do me a big favor. Go take care of that right now. Thanks. We'll see you next month for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers